It's Friday, October 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As details of the impeachment probe continue to develop daily, we're learning that top Ukrainian officials were told in early August about the delay in security assistance, which undercuts one of the main arguments by the president. There was no quid pro quo because the Ukrainians didn't know the assistance was blocked. Andrew Kramer, reporter for The New York Times based in Ukraine, joins us for more. Next, there's an ongoing revolution with smart drugs, accelerating us into a 24-7 society, and chances are you might already know someone who takes cognitive-enhancing drugs. It is predicted that the global brain health supplement market will reach over $10 billion by 2025. Alex Wilkins, reporter at Metro, joins us for how attitudes are changing about smart drugs. Finally, legendary directors Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola have weighed in on Marvel's blockbuster superhero movies, saying they are not cinema and calling them despicable. Responding to the criticism, Disney chief Bob Iger defended the film, saying it was disrespectful to the people who work on those films to criticize them. Eric Schwartzel, entertainment reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us to discuss the latest Marvel criticisms. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We had, uh, I think, good uh, phone call. It was normal. We spoke about many things. And I, so, so I think, and you read it, that nobody pushed it. Pushed me. Joining us now is Andrew Kramer, reporter for The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. The impeachment inquiry and this whole thing going on with Ukraine is still continues to be the talk of the town in Washington. One of the big defenses that the president and his allies have to a lot of this stuff going on, whether there was a quid pro quo, was that the Ukrainians did not know that assistance had been blocked at the time of their phone call in July. So when the president is saying, hey, I want you to look into Burisma, I want you to look into the Bidens, things like that, they didn't know that the aid was withheld, and that's why there was no quid pro quo. But little by little, we're learning that Ukrainian officials did know a lot more about this as early as early August. Officials there were told about this. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about this, Andrew. It's obviously a big story in Washington, but I've been covering this story and these events from Kiev, the capital of, of Ukraine, where it's obviously not as much of a pressing issue for the Ukrainian government, but there is still a, a direct involvement of Ukraine in these issues. So it's been a fruitful place to work as a journalist the last few months and interesting to see this scandal unfold from the Ukrainian perspective. The first article on this actually came out in May, so it's not really been much of a secret since then, but obviously more and more details are coming out. The Ukrainian government was aware of this issue going back even before that because some U.S. outlets had run a number of articles about the Bidens and about Giuliani's effort to encourage the Ukrainians to investigate going back, I think, to March or even earlier. So even as he was coming in during the election and during the period after he was elected and was president-elect, Volodymyr Zelensky was aware of this issue looming over U.S.-Ukrainian relations. So how the pressure campaign unfolded, we're also learning more about that as well. At one point in the summer, it became clear to the Ukrainians that, in fact, Zelensky's effort to have a White House meeting where he hoped to raise 
questions about getting the United States more involved diplomatically in the settlement process for the East Ukraine war, that that meeting would depend on a commitment to investigate Joe Biden and the other issue which Trump was interested in and raised during his call in July, whether Ukraine had meddled in the 2016 election. What had definitely been known to the Ukrainians around the time of the phone call, turns out that military assistance was frozen, I believe, on July 18th. There was a period in July when it wasn't clear whether there were just technical problems or whether there was some political holdup. But on July 18th, according to testimony, Congress, the Office of Management and Budget had put a hold on this aid. There was the call. It was on the 25th of July. By early August, they were aware that the aid was held up, and they were also aware that it was not a bureaucratic problem that should be addressed with the Department of Defense or the State Department, but rather an issue that needed to be raised directly with the White House. How has the president responded to this? Because I know he said, you know, there was no pressure from Mr. Trump to get into these investigations or anything, but that seems like a diplomatic answer, maybe. How do the Ukrainians feel about the president's involvement in all this? The new Ukrainian president is a comedian who famously, before he was elected president, had played a president in a comedy show. So he's responded in part with jokes when he met Trump in New York on the sidelines of the United Nations. The first thing he said is, thank you, Mr. President, for inviting me to the White House, but you forgot to give me the date. Yes, I Um, remember that. So he's tried to make light of this. The position, and really this is a stated position of the Ukrainian government, is they don't want to have a role in domestic American politics. Well, they have a role already, and they've tried to play it very carefully not to antagonize Trump by seeming to assist the impeachment inquiry in the House or to give Mr. Trump what he had wanted by investigating the Bidens. Biden could be president. They could be dealing with a President Biden in a year from now. So they've been playing it very straight and trying to avoid fueling any narrative in partisan politics in the United States. The president has said that he felt no pressure, as he said, no push. Then in a press conference earlier this month, he said that he learned of the aid freeze before a meeting with Vice President Pence in September, but he was vague on when he exactly learned of it. The disclosure that the Ukrainians knew of this freeze by early August kind of corroborates a lot of stuff that we're hearing out of the whistleblower complaint. It seems like all of the news really keeps coming out against the president. Is there anything that's working in the president's favor throughout this whole story so far? Well, I think the narrative that Vice President Biden had abused his office by overlooking a, an apparent conflict of interest while he was in charge of Ukraine policy has also gained traction as a result of this impeachment scandal and the coverage of what Trump had done later. So in that sense, I think there has been a benefit politically for President Trump in, in that it's raised the issue of Biden's role in Ukraine at the time when his son was on the board of this Ukrainian energy company and the apparent conflict of interest there. There may be some political benefit from him. But as you say, a lot of what's been in the whistleblower account has been corroborated so far and conforms with the accusations that are being made by Democrats in the Congress. Andrew Kramer, reporter for The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having me on. People all over the world are taking it in their droves, thousands of people every day. It's really, we do seem to be on the precipice of something quite large and quite transformative for the way in which we relate to drugs in our society. Joining us now is Alex Wilkins, reporter at Metro. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Sure. Nice to be here. Thank you. We're going to be talking about smart drugs and how they're becoming a lot more common And these drugs might be accelerating us into this 24-7 society where we're always up and active and doing something. Tell us a little bit about these cognitive enhancing drugs, Alex. 
So there have always been drugs in human society that people have used for various reasons, especially stimulant drugs. People have been using caffeine for hundreds of years. But in the 20th century, things started to change a bit and the pressures on people and the things people needed out of their drugs also began to change in the 60s when it was sort of a counter-revolution and it was very political and mind-altering. People would take LSD to sort of expand their minds. In the 80s, when it was all about greed and expansion, people would take cocaine. But in the 90s and early 2000s, it was much more competitive. People had to get the edge on their competitors. So naturally, people turned to stimulants that would give them more alertness, more concentration, and greater supposed cognitive abilities. So it took a lot of time in production. But now there is a drug called modafinil, which is also marketed under Provigil in the USA, that supposedly gives these cognitive enhancing abilities. And through that, there's a whole industry has opened up. You have modafinil or Provigil. You have the greater field of nootropics, which are marketed in various forms from sort of simple caffeine substitutes to more risky research drugs. And altogether, it's an enormous industry. There are billions of dollars going into this. People all over the world are taking it in their droves, thousands of people every day. It's really, we do seem to be on the precipice of something quite large and quite transformative for the way in which we relate to drugs in our society. Some numbers behind this, between 2015 and 2017, people using substances for cognitive enhancement jumped from 5% to 23% in the UK alone. And this industry, the brain health supplement market is going to be about $10 billion by 2025. It was only about $1.7 billion in 2016. And you got celebrities like Joe Rogan with his huge podcast. He endorses something called Alpha Brain. Gwyneth Paltrow through her Goop company supports something called Nerd Alert. So this industry and the money-making properties of it also are growing. There's a distinction to be made in terms of the products that these celebrities promote. Alpha Brain by Joe Rogan and this nerd alert from Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop are not necessarily medically improved cognitive enhancers. They have lots of drug components that have shown to maybe enhance memory and maybe enhance concentration. But a lot of the medical evidence for these is not conclusive. Because of that, they don't often have official medical branding. I mean, snake oil salesmen have been around forever. People have always tried to sell improvements for your brain. And we're in the 21st century, so they're going to be branded and pushed by celebrities. But there is a certain difference between these very popular ones and the medically approved ones like modafinil. We're talking about these smart drugs, these cognitive enhancers. Obviously, right away, I think of the movie Limitless with Bradley Cooper and who wouldn't want to take something has little side effects and then you're just a superstar after that. But that is a big question, side effects. With caffeine and things like that, you take too much caffeine, you start to get jittery and you can feel dizzy, nauseous, things like that. But with some of these other things like modafinil, there might not be as many side effects. And this is kind of where we're heading. People are trying to develop that magic drug. So there are... For drugs, it all depends on the dosage. With caffeine, if you have one cup, you'll feel a bit more alert and probably okay. If you have 10 cups, you'll be having a horrible time and you'll have jitters and sweats and anxiety. It's similar to modafinil, except that you can take quite a bit more modafinil and not have such horrible side effects as caffeine. The dose that researchers have been looking at is the 200 milligram dose. There have been lots of studies on this and it's a dose that it appears there's a trade-off where there are no particularly bad side effects but you get the effects of enhanced concentration, enhanced task-related motivation, 
and increased alertness as well. These drugs are supposedly safe. Again, there is still a lot of ongoing research and all of the researchers say that there should be more research given the amount of people that are taking this. But what we are seeing throughout all of this is a change in attitude. You know, a lot of people would say, well, healthy people don't need these types of drugs. You should be operating normally. But the attitude is changing on this. As these drugs do have less and less side effects, people kind of come around to it and they're like, why wouldn't I take some of this? And it's not even these drugs. Also, there's these other techniques like this transcranial magnetic stimulation, which has shown to increase people's cognitive abilities also. People are definitely becoming a lot more comfortable with it. And especially as the biggest population of people that use modafinil is university students. These students will be going on into professional jobs. They will be maturing, going into other industries, and it will become more normalized over time. The industries that started off using them were ones that needed to be awake for long periods of time. So pilots, professors who were traveling from city to city, and students eventually who needed to do well in their exams. But as more numbers of people are using it, it will become more and more normalized. And you mentioned the transmagnetic stimulation. Again, that is something that there is a huge amount of active research on, and it's been shown to have quite positive effects in the brain. But obviously, I think people are slightly more comfortable taking a drug because of the history rather than putting on sort of a helmet that's going to stimulate their brain in certain ways. Alex Wilkins, reporter at Metro. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't. I don't understand it seems so disrespectful to all the people that work on those films mm. who are working just as hard as the people who work on their films and are putting their creative souls on the line just like they are. Joining us now is Eric Schwartzel, entertainment reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Hey, you bet. Thanks for having me. So despite being a big player in Hollywood right now, Marvel Studios has lately found itself on the receiving end of a lot of criticism by other people in the industry, big heavy hitters in the industry. Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola had a lot to say about the Marvel movies. I think Martin Scorsese said all these Marvel superhero movies are not cinema. He compared them to theme parks. Francis Ford Coppola went a little further, said these films are despicable. And at a Wall Street Journal event, Bob Iger, who's the Disney chief, was asked about this. And I think he had a pretty strong defense of it. Tell us a little bit about this whole thing. It was on a Tuesday evening. We were down at this Tech Live conference that the journal throws every year in Laguna Beach. So we're sitting there overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It's a beautiful setting. And Bob Iger was unafraid to wade into the debate. I mean, really some of the most forceful comments he's made yet, pushing back and, as he said, defending his studio and defending the people who work on these films. These are obviously movies that are doing huge business at the box office. They make more money than pretty much anything else being produced right now. And I think a lot of the directors that are coming out and criticizing these movies are kind of saying that they're sucking up too much oxygen at the box office and in Hollywood. It's created a bit of a business model that every studio is chasing right now. And I think many people would say to the detriment of some of the smaller, more art house type films that at one point back in the 70s or 80s would have been released by big studios are now being pushed aside in pursuit of another big superhero movie that'll make you a lot more money. It's totally understandable where Scorsese and Coppola are coming from. Really, this is 
all very subjective to an individual person's taste in movies. But the central question really is, what is cinema? And I think that's where Scorsese and Coppola were coming from. They're making movies, as they say, that convey emotion, psychological experiences to another human being. And they're just not getting that out of these Marvel movies. A lot of people counter that they're based in comics and comic books have rich storytelling in and of themselves. But I think Bob Iger didn't wait into that too much, the notion of cinema, but I think he hit it really good in saying, how can these guys say that other movies are less than when the people working behind them and the people putting all their blood, sweat and tears are working just as hard as if they made your movie? I think backing up his response is the fact that some of these more recent films, especially Black Panther, have been really critically praised in ways that it's harder to just write these off as empty or vapid superhero films because Disney has tried to make them smarter than your average comic book movie. And certainly critics have responded in some cases to those efforts. But you're absolutely right. I think that the directors like Coppola and Scorsese, what they were describing was just kind of like an emptiness at the soul of the films. But I've talked to a lot of fans of Marvel Studios films who would totally say that they certainly get as emotional during those movies as anything else that Coppola or Scorsese has made. These movies, especially among moviegoers who have grown up with them, have a real almost emotional stranglehold on their biggest fans. And also, these movies have been coming out now for more than a decade, so you've got people who, maybe if they're in their early 20s, they started seeing these films before they were teenagers. So there is a bit of an evolution there, in a way that I would say is kind of unique, certainly, to this era, and unique in a way that wasn't quite there when Coppola and Scorsese were making films. Certainly, you had movies like Star Wars coming out every several years, but this kind of interconnected cinematic universe, as it's called, is a relatively new invention. And I do think that it does allow for some kind of emotional power whenever these films really do take off. But I also do think, you know, it's certainly fair to say that making Raging Bull today in Hollywood would be a lot tougher than back whenever Scorsese made it in the early 80s. Obviously, everybody gets asked this question now when something like this pops up and everybody wants to weigh in on. They asked Paul Rudd, who's been in some of the Marvel movies. He was Ant-Man. He said that a lot of times people do attach themselves to these characters, so there is emotion there, but that big studios are not making middle-budgeted films as much anymore, and a lot of those people are now going to television, and we're seeing that kind of shift where a lot of rich storytelling where you might have seen it in a Scorsese or Coppola film, you're getting that in TV, you're getting that in places like Netflix and a lot of these up-and-coming streamers that are going to be coming out. I think a lot of that kind of storytelling has definitely migrated to television, especially when it comes to miniseries and some of the critically acclaimed miniseries we've seen in the past several years, whether it's Big Little Lies or The People vs. O.J. Simpson. That's definitely where a lot of screenwriters and directors and producers want to go right now because it is a place to explore those kinds of stories that aren't on the big screen anymore. Now, when it comes to Netflix, ironically, Martin Scorsese's new film (laughs) is going to be a Netflix film because no Hollywood studio in town wanted to finance a Martin Scorsese movie at the budget that that movie required. Probably back in the 80s or 90s, you could get a lot of adults to shell out for a babysitter and head to the theater just on Martin Scorsese's name alone. It's a bit of a different market right now. And only Netflix, it seems, is willing to take the risk on spending in excess of $150 million on a movie that's going to be geared toward adults who just don't show up to the cinema as much anymore. Eric Schwartzel, entertainment reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Hey, you bet. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.